Oh, so, so my most sarcastic introduction was not recorded. Oh. Okay, so fine. We will do a short review of chapter 18. Okay. So in chapter 18, the Alter Rebbe starts a new idea that serving Hashem properly, meaning where it's not just compliance with the um, halacha, with doing the mitzvahs in our thought, speech, and action as is required in the Torah, but that, that it's motivated the proper motivations, namely love and fear of Hashem, that that is available to a wider range of people than has previously been implied in the Tanya, because previously in the Tanya, it's, the idea was that genuine love and fear is based on um, a contemplation his bindness, reflection on Hashem's greatness, tapping into the cognitive faculties of the godly soul, producing some degree of an emotional response, motivating our Judaism to be meaningful, purposeful, um, relevant, etc., etc., etc. But that's not something that is available to everybody. Specifically, he spoke about people whose um, ability to have a expansive mental engagement with the greatness of Hashem are limited. Um, how can they um, have that kind of deep connection? And so the idea is that there's an, an innate love that every Jew has. And chapter 18 starts a section, Tanya, which is that discussing this innate love and how this innate love ties into every part of Judaism. So in introducing this innate love, the altar sets out that there are four questions about this innate love that need to be addressed. Um, they are, does anyone remember what the four questions were? Not the ones from the Seder. How is, this, how is this love different from all other loves? <laughs> okay, the four questions were number one, um, and I'm not doing them in the order they were there, but the order in which we, we answer them, which is, how is this love something that is inherited? Right? Love, meaning how you feel towards someone or something, is generally not inherited from parent to child. Um, so if I love a particular person, it does not mean my children necessarily love that person because they are my children. Right? Um, so how is this love inherited? Second, um, what is the source of this love? In other words, um, all, all of the midas, all the emotional faculties um, originate in some other aspect of the soul. And so what is the aspect of the soul that generates this love? Um, and those are the two questions which he answered in chapter 18. Okay. Um, and just to highlight this, I'm going to contrast the, the answer to these questions in the regular love that Dr. Discuss, discussed up until chapter 18 and this, and this natural love. In terms of how is generally, generally speaking, how is love for Hashem an inheritance? The answer is it's not. You have to cultivate your own love for Hashem. You don't get it automatically. So... You don't have to explain how it's an inheritance if it's not. And then where, what is its origin point? Its origin point is one's cognition of Hashem. In other words, the degree to which one um, conceptualizes and comprehends the Hashem's greatness is the degree to which they will love Hashem. And the style and flavor of that comprehension will determine the style and flavor of that love. Much the way the way we feel emotions towards other people is very much based on the way in which we know them. Right. So two people can feel very differently about a third person because they know them in different ways. Makes sense, right? Where, now, the natural love, we're saying it is an inheritance, 
And it's not rooted in the faculty of understanding, of our reasoning, of our knowledge of Hashem. So then what is it? Um, and, the, and so that's where we, in chapter 18 we answered that every Jew gets an, a, a, a godly soul um, by virtue of a merit that the forefathers um, were granted. In other words, that prior to the forefathers, a godly soul was something that had to be earned. And when something is earned, it could also be lost. Um, the reward for this special service of the forefathers was that they were able to bequeath the godly soul as an inheritance to their descendants, whoever God determines deems to be a legitimate descendant, because it's not strictly biological. I'm not saying there's no biological component, but it's not strictly biological. Case in point being converts, um, the fact that not of Avraham or Yitzhak's descendants were granted godly souls, um, and, and the fact that we you know, have matrilineal descent, but not patrilineal descent in Judaism post the giving of the Torah. So it's, there is a biological component, but it's not strictly speaking biological. Um, and that every godly soul, regardless of its level in the godly hierarchy of, of different levels of worlds and spheres, etc., has an element of the highest level known as Chachmah. And Chachmah has a unique quality that in Chachmah resides the godly light. And we spoke at length about what that means, that the godly light of Hashem resides in Chachmah. And the result of that is that um, every Jew has an innate imuna, which we call belief in God. Although we discussed a little bit that it may not be the same thing that we think of when we think about believers versus non-believers in the very traditional sense that like, you know, some people, if you ask them, do you believe in God? They say yes. And some people believe, do you believe in God? And they say no. That kind of propositional belief and self-reported propositional life is not really what we're talking about. Um, and that, that sense of, the, of God in Chachmah, when it's fully manifest and fully revealed, is what we have observed in Jewish history as Mesir Snefesh, um, in cases of martyrdom, which is the unwillingness to deny God I'm speaking specifically negative, not the willingness to die for God, but the unwillingness to deny God regardless of the cost. And that that's not correlated with one's level of devoutness or theological sophistication or knowledge. Um, and that even people who are greatly devout and theologians, etc., they're not tapping into those kinds of religious experiences to motivate their martyrdom, but rather it's kind of a discovery of some primal part of themselves that they didn't know existed. And so that phenomenon, which is how Chassidus understands what mysterious Nefesh or self-sacrifice really is, is that Chachma of the godly soul being fully manifest and kind of overtaking the rest of the psyche. Um, but when it's not that case, there's this kind of, it's having a kind of a more subliminal effect on the psyche, which is what we call the Muna. Sometimes the person is more consciously aware of that, sometimes less so, sometimes they're comfortable with it, sometimes they're not comfortable with it, sometimes they're willing to self-report it, sometimes it gets distorted. Um, and none of this has any sort of correlation with one's knowledge of God or one's level of devout um, religious practice. And that's where we left off. Good? Okay. So we're going to start chapter 19. To elucidate still further. Okay. Now, if you're going to elucidate further, you need to tell me what needs to be elucidated, right? Because if... If everything has already been elucidated, there's no need to elucidate further. It's like cooking. What's elucidate mean? Elucidate is a fancy word for explain, because God forbid we should use simple words. <laughs> it makes us sound dumb when we use simple words. When we're saying smart things, we want to use smart words. I'm being sarcastic. 
Yeah. But if you ever do want to sound smart, you use fancy words. And you can take really, really stupid ideas and make them sound sophisticated that way. Um, okay. So, but if you need to, it's like cooking. Yeah? So when something is, once something is done, um, you should stop. Right? You know, if the food is cooked and you continue to heat it, um, you're just going to ruin the food, right? If something has been sufficiently explained, you should not try to explain it further. I'm going to give you an example. Okay? I'm going to give you an example of something that has been sufficiently explained and why we should not end. end okay? So I'm going to, there's going to be the thing that needs the explanation. But I'm going to give you the explanation. Okay. Um, It is wrong to murder. Okay? That's the thing I want to explain. So the, why? Why is it wrong to murder? Okay? And the reason why it is wrong to murder is because human beings were created in the divine image. By the way, that's not my reason why murder is wrong. Whose reason is that? Shams. Shams, right. It's right there in the Chumash. Okay. Now, is there any further explanation required? Now, it, you have to be careful because it may be, and this is an important distinction to make, it may be no further explanation is required, but you didn't understand the explanation. Those are two different things. Right? For instance, it could be that when I say a person is created in the image of God, um, the image of God are words that don't carry any meaning to you. right? And so you would like me to explain that. But, but that's just because of it. I would say that's much more of a case of and I don't mean this to be offensive, but that's a case of ignorance, right? I said words, and you don't know what the words mean. If you knew what the words meant, or you knew what I meant by those words more particularly, right? Then you would be asking the question, right? Okay. So, the image of God, first up by image, we mean a likeness in content, not likeness in how it appears, right? God does not look like a, a physical body, okay? And so there is something about what it is to be human that is similar to what it is to be God. And the idea is that there is supreme value in being God and there is a similarly supreme value in being human. And therefore, the destruction of a human being in the pursuit of some other end is wrong. Does anything further need to be explained there? So... I would, I would say, um, and this is where you have to make another important distinction between ignorance and further explanation. I don't think anything needs to be further explained that if you understand what I meant, or really what the Torah means, when it says that a person is created in the image of God, that that in and of its, that is sufficient to explain why murder is wrong. You could still say that fact itself that the person is created in the image of God, that itself needs to be explained, right? I mean, it's not on its face obvious, right, that a person who is mortal has the same value to, or even a similar value to their being as God who's immortal, right? But that's already not... That's, so so I, might, I might need to further explain something, but, but my original task was done. And this is very important because sometimes conversations get derailed when, when you bring up something to explain something, and the thing you brought up itself needs, needs explanation. Like, it... it First off, again, it may need to be, you may need to just, people aren't, don't even know what you mean. And even when they do know what you mean, well, that itself needs explanation. Well, how is that so? How is that so? Why, why is that the case? Um, 
But you don't really need to go into that to understand the explanation. In other words, if you can, if it would be true, and this is a good way of thinking about it, if it would be true, and it is, that the value of a person is comparable to the value of God in some meaningful way, i.e. people are creating the image of God, then it follows that murder is wrong. Right? Um, and so if you think about it, like when you take a chemistry class or if you take a class on how to do basket weaving or any other topic, every explanation involves other things which themselves might require explanation that doesn't detract from the completeness of the explanation you've been given. It means you don't have universe, knowledge about everything in the universe, it just means but you do understand this thing, how this leads to that. When you say something needs to be elucidated further, it means you actually haven't really fully explained something. You're at, like, you, 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 you set out your goal to explain something and what you gave did not fully explain it. Okay? So, an example. Okay? Okay? So, an example of where you need further explanation. Not because we're ignorant about what was meant by the explanation, not because the thing being used to explain itself needs explanation, but the explanation itself is incomplete. Okay? Um, The Torah has a series of punishments for different sins. Some punishments are very serious, some punishments, or some sins carry very serious punishments, and some sins carry lighter punishments. Broadly speaking, we can categorize the punishments into capital offenses, ones that the, um, that the court would put a person to death. Then beneath that are ones that carry the penalty of kares, or having one's soul cut off. Below that are ones that are liable for lashes. And then below that are ones that have no enforceable punishment at all. That's, a, that's an oversimplification. That's broadly four categories. So you wouldn't then want to say, why is it that different sins have different punishments? Right? That should be explained, right? A sin is a sin. Why have different punishments? And the simple answer would be, simple explanation would be as well, the more severe the sin, the more severe the punishment. Right? But now if I were to go through all the sins and I think about it, what I would discover is that that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It's true about certain things. Certain things um, are very, very severe. The sin is very severe and the punishment is very severe. But there are certain things where the sin doesn't seem to be that severe and this punishment is very severe or things that seem to be more severe but have less severe punishments. And so that does not sufficiently explain. I need more explanation. Okay? The Rambam, it is guide for the perplexed. Um, he actually outlines... And I'm going to oversimplify what he said, that there are two basic parameters, a little more sophisticated than that, which is one is the severity of the sin, but the other is the frequency of occurrence. A sin which is more likely to occur requires a more severe punishment than a sin which is less likely to occur. So a sin which is not so likely to occur, but very severe, may carry less of a punishment than a sin which is maybe less severe, but more likely to occur. So you have a more, more complex explanation, right? So when you're explaining something for you, you have to ask yourself, okay, well, what was about my original explanation wasn't sufficient that I need further explanation? Not the thing I used to explain itself could become the topic of explanation. Right? So to elucidate further, right? Okay. So we ended off discussing this idea of mysterious nefesh, right? The idea that a Jew um, be unwilling to um, d renounce God okay? um, 
even though that would cover, c- carry severe costing, pain of death, suffering, etc. Right. Um, what did we explain about that? Well, we explained why it doesn't track with one's level of um, religious devotion or sophistication. Right? No, it's, it's not the case that the more religiously devout and sophisticated the person was before they entered the, the, the question of martyrdom, that that's going to predict whether or not they're going to be a martyr. It, it just, that, that's not the reality. And we explain that because this Mesiris Nefesh comes from the level we call Chachma, and Chachma transcends rationality. It transcends the question of, of how does this fit into a larger context. So because Mesiris Nefesh is motivated by Chachma, and Chachma is not it, it precedes our rational faculties, number one. And number two, the Chachm is innate in every Jew. Therefore, we find that Mesiris Nefesh does not correlate to rationality and is found amongst even people who are, frankly, very dismissive of religious life and their day-to-day life, or people who are very ignorant of um, the significance of God in their day-to-day life. Right? So we explained its prevalence, right? What did we not explain about Mysterious Nefesh? What's missing? I see that Jews are willing to, yeah, more really unwilling to deny God even under great um, cost. And that I observe that that doesn't seem to track with one's level of scholarship, one's level of devoutness, one's level of engagement in, in day-to-day life with religion. Okay, and I can explain that aspect of the phenomenon. It doesn't correlate those other things because it's coming from this Chachma. And the Chachma is innate and Chachma is not connected to rational thought. Precedes rational thought. Okay, fine. What have I not explained though? So I'm going to give you a little analogy. There's a phenomenon which you can observe. Which is... People like to engage in um, social interactions. Generally speaking, if you deprive people of social interactions, they find that painful. Obviously, there's a variation to the amount, but people are social, yes? Okay. And it does not correlate with intelligence, right? It is not the case that the more intelligent you are, the more social interactions you seek out, or vice versa. It's not the case that the more, the less intelligent you are, the more social interactions. It's independent of your intelligence, right? It seems to be, again, you know, independent of that. But, there's an interesting thing. All human beings need to eat. You familiar with this phenomenon? So I propose that the need to eat is what motivates our desire for social interaction. Does that make sense? Why not? The need to eat is universal. Social need for social interaction is universal. So why can't one explain the other? What's missing? How are they related? How are they related? Right. So we said, okay, Mesiris Nefesh is not dependent upon, Mesiris Nefesh is not related to rationality and devoutness. Okay. But guess what every Jew has? Chachma. So Mesiris Nefesh is related to Chachma. Have you explained how Chachma relates to Mesiris Nefesh other than the fact that they're both in the realm of God? They're God related somehow? You haven't really done that. Right? 
You know, all we've done is saying, okay, I have two parts of people, okay? One part is going to be called the Chachma, the other part is going to be called their um, intellect. And mysterious Nefesh, it's not correlated to intellect, it's too universal for that, so it must be correlated to Chachma, which is universal. Okay, well, it's very nice that Chachma is universal, but why does Chachma lead to mysterious Nefesh? If you can't explain why Chachma leads to mysterious Nefesh, right? then you haven't really done the work of explaining. The explanation is insufficient. Which is slightly different than Chachma being related to Amuna. Let's think about this. So remember we said Amuna was just a sense of the truth of God without the need to kind of articulate what that truth really is. And we spoke about how Chachma is a sense of the truth. So like the relationship with Chachma and Amuna is, is very um, tight. Um, you know, Chach- Chachma is this, the part of the soul which has this direct perception of the truth of God, as we spoke about, and the experience of Amuna is that there's some force in your psyche motivating you to, the, to, 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 to acknowledge, to accept, to relate to things in terms of the truth of God, even though you don't really have any attempt or need or way to make sense of what that truth is. Okay, so relationship with Chachma and Amuna is, I, I would say, one could even question whether we... How much they should be viewed as two different things, rather one thing and and, and its and its effect. But when you talk about mysterious nefesh, mysterious nefesh has is very different than chachma. Chachma is much more. I'm going to put it like this: chachma seems to be much more of a passive type of a thing. Think of vision, right? When I see something, there's a reality, right? And as long as my faculty of vision is working properly and I'm exposed, I think I become aware of it, right? It's not a very vision. Right, um, you know, sight. It's not. It's it, it's not the same thing as like a drive or an urge, right? It doesn't have that kind of dimension to it. Okay. Whereas when we think about mysterious nefesh, we think about you have something is really important to you so much so that your relationship with it, your bond with it, um, supersedes other things to the point that it may be even unbreakable. Right. That seems to be a very different type of a thing. One is much more about an awareness, which is much of a passive thing. The other is much more driven. This is important to me. I am not willing to let go of this under any circumstances. How does my awareness of God from my Chachma translate into Mesir Nefesh? We didn't really explain that. And that's what is required for further explanation. What is it about Chachma that doesn't just motivate Amuna, but specifically motivates Mesir Nefesh? Okay. Um, so I'm going to stop and I'm going to ask, is everyone following what's, what's missing between chapter, from the end of chapter 18 that chapter 19 is picking up on? So we really have three things. Number one, we have the, sorry, we have, I guess you call it two things. We have the questions that were left unanswered, which is, um, we had the questions about the love of, the, the innate love. What is its objective? What is its goal? What does it seek out? Every love is the pursuit of something. What is this love pursuing? And how does it contain fear? Because complete service of Hashem requires both an element of love and fear. So those two questions remain unanswered from chapter 18. And in addition, the end of chapter 18 created a new question, which is, how does Chachm, which is an awareness of Hashem's truth, which transcends reason, how does that motivate Mesir's Nefesh, which is a much more of a, of a proactive, driven type of thing? This is important to me. I am not willing to sacrifice it under any circumstances. Okay. So to elucidate that last question further, 
the relation with Chach Masiris Nefesh. It is necessary to clarify the meaning of the verse, the candle of God is the soul of man. Okay. So we have an analogy that the soul, Nishmas Adam, the soul of man, that is being compared to the candle. Okay, now, a, a word about translation. Um, we translate the Hebrew word ner as candle. This is obviously inaccurate. Can anyone tell me why it's inaccurate? It's fire. Because there were no candles. <laughs> candles are relatively recent invention historically. I don't know when, but in antiquity, they did not have candles. In the Middle Ages, they did have candles. At some point, candles became a thing. Right? Every time it's referring to a nair in the biblical text or in the early rabbinic writings, it's referring to what we would call an oil lamp. Just right? The menorah, right? Was it, was it oil lamps? Okay. Um, now, then there's another ambiguity, which is that the term ner, referring to an oil lamp, um, again, in modern, it, it, it then gets, it then get, moves to mean candles as well, can end up meaning um, a variety of things. So you might, when we say the ner, we might referring to just the vessel, like the actual thing, what we'd call nowadays like the candlestick. Um, you might be referring to the entire apparatus set up with the wick and the oil. You might be referring to the op apparatus in operation, right, with the with actual flame, right? Okay. Here, we're going to be talking specifically about the flame part of the candle, flame part of the lamp, okay? Um, there are other places in Chassidus where this analogy is elaborated at length. We touched on it in class around Hanukkah time, if you remember, okay? Um, okay, so by way of illustration, like the flame of the candle, whose nature is to always flicker upward, for the flame of the fire intrinsically seeks to be parted from the wick in order to unite with its source above in the universal element of fire, which is in the sublunar sphere, as is explained in Eitzchayim. I'll keep reading the end of the paragraph. And although it would thereby be extinguished and emit no light at all below and even above in its source, its light would be nullified. Nevertheless, this is what it seeks in accordance with its nature. End of analogy. Right? So... In order to answer this question, we need an, we have an analogy. Our analogy is that the soul is being compared to the, the flame of the candle or the flame of the oil lamp. And whenever you're drawing an analogy, and this is especially true um, when the purpose of the analogy is, um, con is, is conceptual, is that you want to understand what is it about the analogy that's supposed to carry over, right? Um, so... Um, if I were to say um, London is to England as Washington, D.C. is to the United States, what is carrying over in the analogy? What? City to country. What? Not just city to country. Capital. Capital, capital right, okay, right. Being a capital. So if I'm going to say that the, the, the flame is like the soul, well, what about the flame? It's like, what about the soul, right? I mean, will water put out my soul? Will water put out a flame? Yeah. So is that the analogy? No. So you need to know what is about the analogy. Now here becomes the problem. 
Um, I use the example of London and England on the assumption that most people are familiar with that basic level of geography in the Western world, right? Okay. What if I pick a different analogy for, let's use, um, um, let's say, carbon is to life as what is to a skyscraper. Now this requires you to have knowledge of what? You need to have some knowledge of biology, and specifically chemistry of biology, and you have to have some knowledge of skyscrapers. skyscrapers, right? And you don't even know which area aspect of skyscrapers I'm talking about, right? So it becomes very hard to do that, right? Okay? Um, if you're thinking in an engineering context, what allows skyscrapers to stand up is that they have um, a kind of steel structure that holds up the skyscraper, as opposed to buildings before skyscrapers were held up with the walls. And if you try to hold a building with the walls, you can't build buildings that tall. So by having internal you know, steel or alloy type of structures, right? and if you know anything about chemistry, what allows you to have these really complicated molecules, like DNA and RNA and protein, is carbon. Carbon ends up being the structure that everything can work off of. But you need, like, you see, you see, the problem with analogies is that they, they require you to have kind of a point of reference about the phenomenon to know what you're supposed to carry over, right? Okay. So, why am I calling you this? The analogy of the flame is very, very hard for mar- modern people to understand. Why is it very hard for modern people to understand? Because this way of thinking about fire is not something you've been educated. You've not been educated to think this way about fire or about the world at all. And because you haven't been educated to think this way... Um, the analogy ends up getting missed. Okay. So I'm going to read the analogy again. Like the flame of the candle's nature is to always flicker upward, for the flame of the fire intrinsically seeks to be parted from the wick in order to unite with its source above and the universal element of fire which is in the sublunar sphere as explained in Eitzchheim. Were you aware that there is a universal element of fire uh, which is above the flame in the sublunar sphere? No. Um, so apparently this analogy has something to do with the flame as it is in the candle or oil lamp in its relationship with its source of the, namely the universal element of fire in the sublunar sphere. But if I have never thought about fire in that way before, I have no idea what the Tanya is trying to tell me, right? Okay. Now most, what usually happens is that people read this and they think about, okay, well, you know, the flame kind of flickers like it wants to go up. And so the soul kind of like wants to go up to God, right? right. Pretty good, <laughs> Pretty good right? Okay. Um, and I'm not going to say that that is wrong, but it is also not right. In other words, it is, it is too vague and misses the point and doesn't actually tie into the rest of the chapter. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's fine, but, you know. So... There are two choices. Choice number one is I can brush over this very, very, very quickly and just talk about the soul. And choice number two is we can take a detour into natural philosophy of um, um, the ancient world, late antiquity, the Middle Ages, and the Renaissance up until the scientific revolution, which, in, which is the understanding, although there are tremendous variations in the details, um, that the analogy is in. So this is... 
I don't want to make this an issue of Torah says this and science says this because it, it's a little bit beside the point. An analogy must make sense in the way you understand things. I'll just give you a, an example. Um, if a rabbi gets up and he says something about something being in our spiritual DNA, it's a useful analogy because of the way DNA is understood in the popular culture. Even though if you are a biologist, that analogy might actually fall apart very quickly. Um, for instance, most people aren't, or I would say aren't aware, but they haven't seriously thought about the fact that DNA works as a, as a kind of code. It's, it, 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 it's linguistic in nature, so... Um, just think about like, like in language, right? The meaning of a particular word in a sentence changes depending on the rest of the sentence and that meaning of the sentence changes on the rest of the paragraph. So a particular gene really is meaningless. The meaning of the gene is in terms of all the other genes. And when you start thinking about, and that's a key element of how DNA works, and that very often is not brought up when someone says, it's in your spiritual DNA. They just mean it's kind of like core and fundamental to you, right? The specific linguistic structure of DNA like is not like part of that. Okay, so, but when you ask a biologist, they really do think of it in terms of that, of turning genes on and off, and how does turning off one gene affect the, the other genes and how that affects the cell, which affects the organism, right? So again, the, the, it, it's much more about how you understand the phenomena rather than like, the question of Toro claims this, science claims that, that's really kind of beside the point. Okay, so this is, like I said, this is kind of the classic understanding, and it's, it's quite intuitive when we think about our experience of things. So first thing I need to do is I need to introduce the idea of the four elements. Okay. There's an idea which we find in um, classic rabbinic writings as well as other, as other um, sources outside of Torah, the idea of the four elements. I'm sure you've heard of them, right? Air, earth, fire, and water. What are the four elements? I just named them, so that's obviously not what I'm asking. What are they? Well, when you call something an element, or the Hebrew the word is yesod, the idea is that these are basic, these are foundations, they're fundamental, right? Okay, that's the idea of an element. Okay, so how many, in chemistry, how many elements are there? A lot. What? A lot. How many? Order of magnitude. One, two, three, four. 120? 120. 120. Periodic table. What? what? Yeah, the periodic table. What? There are, <laughs> yeah, so uh, there, there are, there are a hundred upper teens. Ish, maybe in the two the twenties now. I don't know. Okay. Now, but those are only elements if you're thinking in terms of chemistry. The idea is that the processes of chemistry that we, um, you can break water down. Reference only, you could break water down to hydrogen and oxygen, right? Um, you could break things down, and when you use chemical process, you can break things down into these hundred plus elements. But you can use other types of processes to break things down even further, and so you end up with something called fundamental particles, right? So like protons, neutrons, and electrons, right? They're more elemental, right? Okay, so when we talk about the four elements, what are we talking about? So this way of thinking, and again, there are variations on it, is the idea that there are kind of archetypes to the qualities that things exhibit. So in this way of thinking, if you want to kind of like move your head a little bit out of the physical sciences and more into like, you know, your realms of like literature even though we're still talking about the physical sciences, okay? Or, or we're talking about the physical world. So when we speak about something as being like the element of water, we mean that it has qualities that exemplify this kind of category, the archetype of water. So water is something that is fluid, it's flowing, it's cool, it seeks to collect at the lowest available place, okay? 
it, 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 because it's a fluid, it's soft, things can move through it. So anything that has these types of qualities are exhibiting the element of water. Even water, pure water, is not really the element of water. It is maybe just the best example of the element of water. Does that make sense? Okay. What would be the element of earth then be? Soaks things up. It soaks things up. No. Soaking things up is going to be an interaction of different elemental things. If you had just the element of earth, it wouldn't soak anything up. It's dry. It's hard. It holds its shape. Okay. Now you might be tempted to think, oh, you're just talking about solids and liquids. And there are people like to kind of say that there's just no way of saying it, although then you run into the issue, okay, then air would be gases, but the way you do it with fire. I don't want to worry about how to correlate these specifically with the concepts of science. But it's a way of thinking about things as exhibiting these kind of fundamental qualities. So you take something like my hat, and you say, well, the fact that I can't stick my finger through the hat, that's exhibiting, that's because of the element of earth. But the fact that I can bend it is because there's some element of water to it. The water gives it some flexibility. Now, does that mean that like there's little particles of water and little particles of dirt? That's not the way that we're thinking about this, okay? Thinking again, and, and, and therefore it kind of carries over nicely to our notions of like personality, right? So you think of some people as more intellectual and some people as more emotional, some people as more introverted, some people as more extroverted, some people as more empathetic and some people less so, some people as more um, uh, selfish and some people as, as, as more, more selfless or, or group oriented, right? But we don't think of these as little pieces that you put together and build up a person like Lego pieces, the way we think of like, you know, pieces of like a molecule being atoms or things like that. We think of them as parts in the sense of like archetypes and themes that every human being can exhibit. And, and if you kind of take that and you kind of think of the natural world, physical world that way, so you say, okay, then that's what, that, you know, kind of there's a, this, this thematic structure of how things are created. Okay? And in Kabbalah, this is the, the idea of the four elements are tied very heavily to the idea that there are four letters to God's ineffable name, um, the four kingdoms in the terrestrial plane. So you have the inanimate, the vegetable, the animal, and the human beings. Um, so it's, it's a very important idea. It's, 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 again, going back to the idea of literature, it's the idea that you have kind of recurring themes and patterns because something is a creative work. Okay? So the idea is that even on the physical level, you have these kinds of four broad categories. Okay. So while a flame would be the most... Um, purest manifestation of the element of fire, it is not, as you see from the text, it is not actually itself the universal element of fire. And water, again, is not the universal element of water. It's just the maybe purest manifestation of it. Okay? Now, one of the ideas is that each element has its natural place. What does it mean, its natural place? It means that, so if you think about going back to the idea of like the person, what is your natural place? Your natural place is the place that you go back to unless you have something preventing you from going back there. Okay, we have a name for that. What's the name of that place you go back to unless you have something preventing you from going back there? Home. 
Why are you not home right now? Something is preventing you from going back there. What's preventing you from going back home right now? School. Right. Now we could be a little bit more specific and say, your interest in learning, right? Right? It could be your need to get groceries, right? It, right? And any number of things. But, but if you find a person who is not in their home, right? It is a perfectly legitimate question of why you're not in your home, right? In the absence of any reason not to be in their home, they are, they'll be in their home or they'll be heading back to their home. What if they don't have a home? Then um, I will quote our sages, someone who does not have a home is not a person. Now, that is not a statement of their intrinsic lack of humanity, but it is a statement of the fact that, there is, that, that their humanity is being um, violated. And um, that's unfortunately the case. Someone who does not feel that there is a place that they should go back to when there's no reason to be somewhere else um, has a very hard time maintaining a sense of their own human dignity, their sense of what it is to be a person. Um, that's why um, being homeless is much more than just a material problem. Um, it's, it's a deep psychological problem, which they manifest as a you know, social problem. Um, but then if you extend this idea, and you say, okay, well, in a, there is an analogous way about everything, that everything kind of has natural place. So what is the natural place of the element of earth? What is the natural place of the element of water? Meaning if something has that theme, that aspect of it, propels it or drives it to go to its natural place again, unless something else is preventing it from doing so. So this is the thing you have to understand. In this way of thinking, everything is either in its natural place, heading back to its natural place, or has a reason, has a reason that's, not, that, that's not happening. Something is stopping it, right? So what is the natural place of the element of Earth? the ground. This is seen by all the hard, earthy-like stuff. If you just let it be, it goes down to the earth until something stops it or it hits the earth. Right? What's the natural place of the element of water? You can do a simple experiment. You take some stuff which is very earthy and some stuff which is very watery. I don't know, like say, I don't know, rocks and water and you put them in a place, and you see what happens. And how do they arrange themselves? And how do they arrange themselves? Down. They both go down, but what happens? The water goes on the rocks. So the element of water is to be, is natural places to be above earth. And then you continue this with air. Put some air in a container with some rocks and some water, shake it up and let it sit, what happens? How do they arrange themselves? Yeah. Simple enough. Okay, I'm going to leave out fire for right now. So the idea is that everything naturally seeks to go back to its natural place. Now, if this is the way you understand the world, this is the way you think about the world, is there anything unique about fire trying to go back to its natural place? So is there any reason to specify that the soul is like fire? Because it's just like the soul likes to go back to God, so to the fire. Everything is like that. Everything, the dominant element of that, of that, entity, that object, that material, is going to try to go back to its natural place. Now, it gets very complicated as the elements mix together, and so different things happen. By the way, this is the, one of the, the, the ideas when we see in the, in the morning blessings, we make a bracha that Hashem, Reik al-Hamayim, 
that he made the the earth um, be like a, a, a platform above the water. And the idea is, what is the natural place of the element of earth below the water? And that would make it impossible for us land-based beings to exist, right? And so on the third day of creation, what did God do? He moved the water aside so the dry land should appear. And the idea is that that is fundamentally a violation of the, of the natural order in its purest form. And so we make a blessing every day that that violation of the purest form of natural order continues to exist. Now, we often think of natural order as what we're used to, so we're used to it. But the idea is that, that really something has to happen or something has to be in place so that there should be um, you know, enough stable earth-like stuff higher than the water level because the natural place of the fluid-like stuff is above and the natural place of the earth-like stuff is below. Okay. So we're getting back to our, 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 our discussion here. That means every single element is, every single element is trying to go back to its natural place. And one of the things that differentiates the elements from each other is where does, where does it belong? So then you have to ask, well, why is the analogy that the soul is compared to the flame and not anything else? Okay. Now, what happens when a rock is able to go back to its natural place? Let's start there. What happens? It doesn't feel anything. It's a rock. <laughs> Nothing happens. It's just there. The rock, not in its natural place, the rock in its natural place are basically the same. Right? What happens to water if it goes to its natural place? Air when it goes to its natural place. Right. In other words, the difference between being in a natural place and not being in a natural place is a difference is a difference in its location, and it's also a difference um, in how it relates to that location. When it's not in its natural place, something needs to keep it there. When it isn't in a natural place, it keeps itself there. But other than that, the thing is the same, whether it's in its natural place or not. What about fire? And again, many things have elements of fire, but something which is which is element of fire is the dominant element, such as an actual flame. Well, for right now, we're just going to take it as, uh, uh, just as an acceptance that the element of, the, 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 the universal element of fire is in the sublunar sphere, as it says. What is a sublunar sphere? Anyone know? That's kind of built into the words. What? Below the moon. And seeing as how the moon orbits the earth, below the moon would mean above the atmosphere, but below the moon, below where the moon orbits, right? that place where we call outer space, right? Before you get to the moon. And that's apparently where the element of fire is. Now, um, if you look up there, do you see any flames? When the flame is no longer being held down and goes back to its natural place, do you see flames shooting up into space? Is that what happens? No. So is the flame as it is in its natural place Subsumed in the element, in, 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 subsumed in, in the universal element of fire, the same as the flame when it is not its natural place, i.e., when it's you know being held down by the wick and the burning oil. It's very very different. So that's already one thing that is unique to fire. That is different from the other elements. Is going to carry over. 
Right, so if we read it again, right, what does it say? It says, by way of illustration, like the flame of the candle, whose nature is to always to flicker upward, for the flame of the fire intrinsically seeks to be parted from the wick in order to unite with its source above in the universal element uh, uh, fire, which is in the sublunar sphere explained in a time. And although it would thereby be extinguished emitting no light at all below and even above in its source, its light would be nullified. And nevertheless, this is what it seeks in accordance with its nature, right? So that no longer emitting light, right? The fact that it going back to its source involves some element of being extinguished. That is unique to the element of fire. It does not exist when things that have the element of earth go to their natural place, go back to their source, or um, water or air. Okay. So if I were to simply suffice and say, just like the flame wants to go back up to its source, so too the soul wants to go back up to God, I've kind of missed the point. Right? Because in this way of thinking, and this is, again, this way of thinking is kind of, a, I would even say this way of thinking continues in, even into modern physics. I'll explain to you in a second how that is. Everything seeks to be in its natural place. And so saying something seeks to be in its natural place is not like telling me anything, anything that differentiates it from anything else. In modern physics, we think about this in terms of, in terms of energy states and, and stable equilibriums. The idea being is that some states require a lot of energy to maintain and some states require less energy to maintain. And the idea is things tend to prefer to be in which kinds of states? Things require less energy to maintain, or what are called stable equilibriums. And so if I see something that's not in a stable equilibrium, I have to ask myself, how did it get there and what's keeping it there? If I see something that's in a stable equilibrium and it's in a lower energy state, I can pretty much say, well, you know, it makes sense that it would be there. I don't really need to explain very much. It's a, the same type of thinking, but made a little more mathematical, less qualitative. So going back, so saying the soul wants to go, everything wants to go back to where it, so to speak, belongs. Again, I'm using the word want in very loose terms. I don't mean it actually feels desires. We're talking about inanimate objects. But what's special about the flame is that the flame going back to its natural, to its natural place, right, to its source, involves the extinction of the flame. What would that tell us about the soul if we don't read the next paragraph? Like, imagine our tanyas were cut and we don't have the rest of the chapter. What would we then be able to conclude about the soul? Not merely that the godly soul seeks to return to God, but it loses its existence. Returning to God involves the annihilation of the soul in some significant, meaningful way, and nonetheless, that's what the soul desires. So it's kind of a trade-off that the soul has to, I don't know, contend in the name of the word, but that the soul faces between achieving its desire with its, of, of, of to return to God and the soul's actual existence. And what's something that has a similar trade-off? The flame. The flame can return to its source or it can exist as is, but it can't have both. That's not something we see by a rock. It's not something we see by water. It's not something we see by air. Good? Okay. It's another difference. Um, my hat is currently being obstructed from getting to its natural place. Can you tell? Well, look at my hat, and I want you to tell, by looking at my hat, can you tell that it's being obstructed? What's the natural place of my hat? The head. No. The floor? The floor. Well, not really the floor. Hat stand. The earth, right? To get as close to the center of the earth as possible. Okay. But... How do you know that? You don't know that from looking at the hat right now. What? You don't, like, you look at the hat, from day to day, you don't know that, right? If all, you only can encounter the hat as it is right now sitting on the table, you would, it would be perfectly reasonable to conclude the natural place of the hat is on the table. 
It's only when someone takes that off the table and lets go of it, and it falls past the table, like, ah, apparently the hat of its own accord will not rest on the table because it doesn't go back to the table. It's a homeless hat. Make sense? Does that make sense? Okay. Let's use a, let's use a psychological uh, analogy for the same idea. Um, let's say you have somebody who is at work and they love what they do. And what they do is very meaningful. It's deeply satisfying. Um, and their work provides accommodations for their, for their maintenance, their upkeep. So there's a place to eat, there's a place to sleep. Right? Um, it may not be intuitively obvious that this person is not at home. Right? This person can achieve a kind of state of rest outside of their home because they found a place which accommodates them. And so, granted, it's not their home, right? Um, and in the absence of a reason, they wouldn't be here. They would go back to home. But they can be here in a kind of settled way. So much so, they can kind of, they can kind of um, lose or, 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 or hide the fact that this is not really their home. Does that make sense? Okay. In a kind of similar way, the hat can just sit there. And, you know, if I didn't know anything about the world other than the fact that the hat is there. I see the hat come back and stay there. Nothing seems to be holding it there. Right. I have to like change things to figure that out. Now, if you look at a flame, though, what seems pretty obvious as you look at a flame? It's it's flickering. It's like, and actually to get the flame to just sit there is like it's a it's a trick. There's this whole discussion in Hasidus about when flames do just sit there, what that signifies, what that means, what I'm going to. But flames, as a general rule, they flicker and it seems to be kind of unstable. Right? So even so, there's a difference, right? and the same thing with the water and the air. That when these things are not in their natural place, they can be in a kind of state of rest outside their natural place. Whereas the flame, even though it's being held down by the wick the same way like the, the hat is being obstructed by the table, um, and that sense you think the same thing, so just, it should stay on the wick and just be there until the wick no longer holds it, we see that it's manifesting the tension that the, the for lack of words, the desire or the urge to return back to its source is never quieted by the fact that something's obstructing it in a way that the other elements... It is being quieted. So we have here already two differences between the way the element of fire exhibited in the flame is different than the other elements. One, when it returns back to its source, that involves a kind of annihilation of self, an elimination of its own existence, and yet it seems to desire that. And two, that need to return back to its source is not quieted, it cannot, it cannot be suppressed by being a state of rest outside its source. And then we don't find that phenomenon manifest when we talk about, say, rocks or water or other things that don't have the element of fire as the dominant element. So what are the two things that make the soul very unique, and at least in regard to what we want to get at? This is that the soul's relationship with God is that the soul seeks to return to God, even though that involves an annihilation of the soul. And that desire to return to God is not just an innate desire, but it's something that is, that is it, it's never quieted, right? Just like the flame is constantly flickering. Right? Um, now, 
both of these elements are a little bit more sophisticated. And I would like to go into it, but before that, I just want to summarize. So, the flame is to its source as the soul is to God. In what respect? Number one, just as the flame seeks to return to its source, even though it involves an annihilation of the flame, so too the soul seeks to return to God, even though it involves an annihilation of the soul. Would you want to go home if going home meant you ceased to exist? It's not generally think of as going home, is it, right? Okay. Number two. Everything, the flame's desire to return to its source is manifest, right? It's never quieted. It's never in a state of rest. This flame is never in a state of rest outside of its source. The soul's desire to return to God is um, similarly, right? It's never, it's never in a state of rest when it's not unified with God, when it hasn't returned to the source. Now, questions? Okay. Now what I want to do to make this a little bit more sophisticated is I want us to think about a flame for a moment and let us ask ourselves, is it true that the, every part of the flame is flickering? So if we break down a flame, I'm gonna oversimplify. We break down a flame, there's kind of like two basic parts of a flame, okay? There's the part of the flame, which is the heat and combustion taking place, right? So you have like, you've got the wick and the wick is burning, right? And there's oil or some other, you know, wax being drawn up through and it's being burned, right? And that, burning phenomena, right, is attached to the, it's, it's right there happening in the wick. Um, is that flickering? Assuming again, we have um, substances that are, that are um, conducive to burning, right? And it's if you use, you know, bad oil or bad wick, and that, that's a different discussion. Right? But assuming like you have like say cotton wick and olive oil, right? What, but then you have this other part of it, which is like the actual like, like flame, like that little tongue of like orange, yellowish, whitish stuff that comes out. And that does seem to flicker around, right? And it seems to kind of try to send upward, but it can't get too far, right? So when it's speaking of the element of fire that is, that is um, flickering upwards, it seems to be more talking about not the burning part, but that other part, that, that kind of that, that, that um, the actual yellowish, whitish flame part. Um, and that's also the part that produces the light, right? That's the part that's, that's the most ephemeral part of the flame. Does that make sense? So, the way, the way that this is understood in Hasidus is that really when we're talking about the flame, even the flame itself, this analogy is really only true about that, that specific part of the flame. That that part of the flame has such a strong sense of the source that it is never comfortable being its own entity distinct from the source. Okay. So 
In other words, the, 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 there's kind of two parts of the, the, the flame. There's the fact that there's some physical material that is burning, right? And then on top of that, that's kind of a condition on which rests this kind of this, this, this radiant luminescent flame. And that radiant luminescent flame has such a strong sense of its source and its source being kind of the core and that it existing in any way that's kind of distinct from its source makes it uncomfortable. And that's why that keeps kind of flickering upwards and away. Whereas the burning is just the phenomenon that's happening in the physical wick and the oil and it just continues to burn. So in a similar sense, there is, there is what we're going to say about the soul is that there's some aspect of the soul which has a very strong sense of God and therefore is to some degree uncomfortable about being distinct from God or separate from God. Okay. Now, um, there's a language that's used in Hasidus a lot, which is called, um, usually translated spiritual and physical, um, ruchni and gashmi, the Hebrew. Um, and what I'm going to say now is generally true. Is it always true? It's not always true, but it's generally true. What do we mean when we say something is ruchni, spiritual, and Hasidus versus gashmi, physical? And the reason why this is a tricky question is because it turns out that these are understood as a continuum rather than as, as, as absolute categories. In other words, I would say, not when it says, I'd say, well, you know, my hat, it's physical, you can touch it, right? Um, you know, but like, I don't know, the soul is spiritual, right? Angels are spiritual, right? Trees are physical. But Hasidus uses the words physical, spiritual, or the Hebrew gashmi and ruchni as relative terms. So it'll say it's more spiritual or less spiritual, more physical or less physical. And you have to ask, well, what does it mean to be more or less physical or spiritual? So yes, they're opposites or dichotomy, but they're not black and white categories. Oh, you're either one or the other. There's something that comes in a degree, kind of think of like hot and cold, right? What is hot by one measure is cold by another measure. So what are we measuring or what are we, what are we referring to when we speak about something being physical or spiritual? And the idea is, very simply, the degree to which something, and I'm going to use this word comfortable again, I don't overanalyze it too much, the degree to which something is comfortable being its own thing versus the degree to which it is um, uncomfortable being its own thing. It needs to be, it needs to revert back to the source from whence it came. So the body and soul, which is more physical, which is more spiritual? The body Why? Because it doesn't by itself necessarily feel the need to go back to the source. And the soul? Does. does. Now, but if I start taking the soul, I can say some parts of the soul are more physical. And some, for instance, the godly soul is often, the godly soul is often called spiritual, and the animal soul is often called physical. So even though we're talking about like a non, you know, if you were to ask a, a physicist, you know, to study the animal soul, they would have no idea what you're talking about. It's not a physical thing in that sense, but it's called gashmi, it's called physical, because the animal soul is very comfortable being preoccupied with its own personal existence and well-being, and the godly soul is not. The godly soul is very much about God, right? So, but then I could take the godly soul and divide the godly soul up and say, well, certain elements of the godly soul are more physical and certain ones are less physical. Right? So you go back to the flame, right? So, I mean, in general, flames are more spiritual than other things because flames, like, they burn themselves out, right? But if I take the flame and I divide, I think, okay, there's the combustion part of the flame and then there's that, that kind of white glowing tongue-like thing that's hovering over. Which of the two is more physical and which of the two is more spiritual? 
well, one is a physical phenomenon happening with, with, with stuff, and the other just comes to be hovering there, very uncomfortable with the fact that it's there. It's, just, it's there and doesn't want to be there. And the other one seems to be like this thing that's just eating stuff. So we would say that the combustion part of the flame is the physical part of the flame, and the, the luminescent kind of yellowish part is the spiritual part of the flame. And that's specifically what it's referring to here. That part of the flame has such a strong sense of orienting around the source that it's just extremely uncomfortable with its own existence. And it seeks to depart from the wick, as opposed to the combustion part just seeks to have more wick and more oil to burn and consume. So there's kind of a tension within the flame itself. Similarly, why is it obvious to all of us that there's no giant element of fire in the sky? Because when we look in the sky, what don't we see? We don't see any light, right? We see darkness. So which is the, what? Well, that's when seeing the sky in, in its natural state. Right? Oh. The sun is kind of, you know, you're seeing the light of the sun, right? But the sky itself is dark, clouds. right? Oh, the clouds are below, right? And you go up in space, it's, there's nothing there, right? Mm-hmm. So the, that bright, you know, flame, mm-hmm. right? It's the thing that undergoes the radical change, right? You know, the, the, it, it, instead of being bright, now it's dark. It's literally the opposite, so you have something which is bright, uncomfortable with its own brightness, seeking to return to its source, and in its source, it's not bright. There's no brightness. There's just darkness. Okay. Source of light is darkness. That, or the source of, of the light of a flame. The Chassidus distinguishes the light of the sun, light of a flame. Yeah. But I don't want to go into that right now. So, so, so what is that telling us about the soul? It's telling us about the soul is that the godly soul is very, very interesting. It is not just it's spiritual. It is hyper-spiritual. It is ultra-spiritual. It is spiritual to an insane degree. That its sense of the source is so overwhelming that it is not comfortable with, with, with its own existence in any level. And in returning to its source, what is left of its existence is nothing. Right? It's actually embracing the antithesis of its own existence. The light seeking to be subsumed into darkness. Now, does that sound like a normal kind of behavior? No. Okay. But if I were to say, like, the, the water seeks to return to its source in the ocean, right, that actually makes kind of intuitive, normal sense. Like, most things seek to go back to their natural place. They seek to be amongst like kind, right? We like to go home to family, right? You assume we get along with our family, but... So the, the, the flame, and specifically that, that higher part of the flame, that white flickering part of the flame, represents this, this hyper-spirituality of the godly soul, and that's the analogy. It's not just simply reducing to the soul returns to God, the soul seeks to return to God, the flame seeks to return to its source, so therefore the same. It, it, like I said, it, it, it's, the desire to seek to return to your source is, is too, in this way of thinking, is too universal to be the, what's, what's, being, what's being drawn out. Okay. And we go one step further. Um, <sighs> there's something called rationality. And by rationality here, I don't mean the ability to think things through. I mean the way that economists use it, which is things pursuing things that are to your own benefit. 
So for instance, throwing your money away is not considered rational. Why? It's not to your benefit, right? So when an economist, when an economist sees a behavior, they, you know, class economist assumes that everybody is rational, and so they try to figure out what is the benefit that the person is trying to achieve. So for instance, paying your employees is not rational until you realize that, well, no, it is because if you pay your employees, they do work for you, and you get work for you, you get more money, right? Okay. Um, and then you add in when, when it turns out that people are not perfectly rational, we have all sorts of things that we do. We, it seems to us we're doing something that's in our interest, but really not. Um, so we call these, you know, um, um, cognitive biases and things like that. Um, but we kind of have this assumption that fundamentally every living being is rational. And then the question is just how to arrange that rationality. So for instance, um, we wouldn't necessarily think that everything a bee does is for the benefit of the individual bee. Right? But we understand bees as a kind of different kind of organism, a hive-like organism. So we think of it in terms of the level of the hive and then it all makes sense, right? So some things are maybe not rational if I think about my life in the short term, but they're rational if I think about my life in the long term. Some things are rational not if I think about myself purely as an individual, but as a member of a group. And my group identity is maybe stronger, right? Okay. But so there's this notion of rationality or rational self-interest, right? That, and, and again, and the question is, a, how effective, like how many biases you have that mess that up? And then B, what is the self that we're talking about? Is it the individual self in the moment? Or is it this individual self over time? Or is it the collective self? Whatever. Does fire seem to exhibit rationality in this sense? The, the flame? What does the flame get when it achieves its desire? Which is, so is it, is it enhancing itself in any way? No. Right. So... The, 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 the fire in this part of the flame, it seems to be exhibiting the, the, the exact opposite of rationality. Okay? I don't mean stupidity. I don't mean like two plus two is a pineapple. I mean that instead of seeking out the furtherance and enhancement of itself to the best of its ability, whatever its sense of itself is, it seems to have located the value as something other than itself, beyond itself, and that it has such a strong urge and need to unite with the thing that is so other than itself, um, that when it does so, it ceases to be itself entirely. Right? And that's what he says, right? To depart from the, it, 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 to, to be parted from the wick in order to unite with the source, right? Although it would be extinguished and emit no light at all below and even above in its source, its light would be nullified. So it's kind of this almost anti-rational thing, this, this desire to, that my true self isn't myself at all. It's something that, that eliminates myself, eliminates my being. Because I'm oriented around something entirely other than myself. And that is what we want to carry from the analogy of the flame to the soul. Now, we still have to talk about the soul, right? I've just been talking about the analogy, just carrying it over a little bit. But we have to talk about the, the, we have to talk about the soul and what this really means in the soul um, and where this comes from and how this works. So it is wrong to think, and as we're going to conclude here, it is wrong to think that the soul seeks to return to God because that is the thing that makes the soul feel um, the best. Right? It is... It is it, to think of the soul's ideal state of being is when it's able to connect to God is wrong. Because what happens when the soul unites with God? 
What happens to the soul? Well, what happens to the flame? Does the, when the flame, does the flame, it's not like the flame is flickering down here and then it goes up to its source and it's finally just sitting there stably. No, or it shines brighter. It ceases to shine down here and it ceases to shine up there. So it turns out being with the source is more important than being itself. And the reason why we use the analogy of the flame is that is there anything else in the natural world that exhibits that kind of quality? No, that's why that's used as the analogy. And again, when you think about it psychologically or biologically, living organisms tend to have the exact opposite tendency, which is what do they seek to do? They seek to enhance and perpetuate themselves, whatever the sense of self is to the best of their ability. And the flame is an example of the opposite tendency. And so the soul, in that sense, is very opposite what we think of as a living being or a person. Not in the sense of it's inanimate, not in the sense that it's um, doesn't have drives or experiences, but that it's oriented around the kind of opposite thing. Okay, so ponder that. And Although generally we have Tanya on Mondays and Tuesdays, questions and answers on Wednesdays, due to all sorts of administrative issues, we are not having class tomorrow. We'll be having Tanya on Thursday. So Thursday we're going to pick up where we left off and move from the analogy of the flame and start talking about the soul and understanding that, and eventually this will tie back to our discussion about Chachma and Mesir Nefesh. But you're encouraged to think about it and read ahead, and you probably could figure out the connection. Thank you. Thank you.